0: Uh, when it comes to cell phones, how many of you are familiar with the modern term ghosting? So, so yeah, okay? Do you, ha- do you happen to know what it means? From, from what I am told, the term is often used to describe when someone calls you, you look at the number, And instead of answering the phone, you send it directly to voicemail, right? Have any of you ever done that before? Sure you have, right? Sure you have. Ghosting is when you ignore someone's phone call. In fact, sending someone to voicemail is actually a nice feature, isn't it? Right? Because look, there are some calls that we we just don't want to answer, aren't there, right? I mean, do you really want to extend your car's warranty? <laughs> no. Yet it's, it's not just telemarketers. We can also purposely ignore others, can't we? In fact, the truth is, if we really applied ourselves, if you really applied yourself, you could ignore just about everyone. Well, almost everyone, whether we like it or not, there is one person we cannot ignore. Indeed, there's one person that all of us, everyone will meet and have to give an account to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friend, as God's anointed king, Jesus is the one whom everyone must respond to. You can't just send him to voicemail. Indeed, during his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly called everyone he encountered to follow him. That is, he called people to trust him and follow him as the king of his or her life. And friend, if you are here this morning, it is not by accident And what you need to know is that Jesus is on the other line and he is calling you. He is calling you to follow him. That is, through his word, Christ is calling you to quit living for yourself. And instead, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him as the king in your life. And the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus' call to repent of your sins, trust him for your salvation, and follow him? It's arguably, and it's not an overstatement, it's arguably the most important question you will have to answer. You know why? Because, friend, love compels me to tell you this, eternity hangs in the balance. This morning, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel 19. And for over a year now, we've been working our way through the books of First and Second Samuel. And in the previous passage... 2 Samuel 18, we learned that God's anointed king at that time, King David, he was in exile. His evil and rebellious son Absalom was trying to overthrow God's kingdom. Yet, as 2 Samuel 18 records, the servants of David defeat Absalom and his men. God's kingdom is preserved. So you know what happens in our passage this morning? King David returns to his throne. And as we're about to see, everyone in the text, they know what that means. And you know what that is? It means everyone now is faced with a choice. They have to respond because they know with David returning to the throne, it means they must follow him as king. And here's the question, how are they going to respond? You see, Faith, our passage this morning highlights an important truth that runs throughout the pages of Scripture, and that is this encountering god's king requires a response encountering god's king requires a response as we've discussed many times before david is a type of the lord jesus christ his life is a pattern that is repeated in god's ultimate king the lord jesus and what we're going to see is in our text this morning is that the author again, slows the narrative down for us to observe three encounters King David has. And as we're about to see, each person responds differently to God's king. And here's what I want invite you to do this morning. I'm going to invite you to do something that's this. I want to invite you that as we work our way through this passage, I want you to ask yourself which of these three responses am I like? That is, what is my response to God's king? That is, is your response to God's ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, like any of the responses we see of these men in relationship to God's King at that time, David? All right. So so if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 19. That's page 271 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. As I've stated, Absalom is dead. David has been corrected. And unsurprisingly, God's people are complaining. (laughs) They are trying to decide who's going to bring King David back to the land. David suggests the tribe of Judah Furthermore, as a way to signal that David's going to be a king of peace, David, get a load of this, he appoints Absalom's commander to be the commander of David's army in place of Joab. And the text says that this move by David, it swayed the hearts of the men of Judah, so they they begin to bring David back to Jerusalem. Now, the other tribes of Israel... They're offended by this. And we're going to talk about this more next week when we look at chapter 20. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on what the author wants us to focus in. And that is the response of three individuals who get all this, who come out to meet David on his journey back to Jerusalem. And as we're about to see, the people David encounters... On his return, many of them are the exact same people he met when he had to flee in chapter 15. Remember that? Remember uh, the beginning of chapter 15, we read of how Absalom was conspiring and getting the people of Israel to want him to be king, so David flees, and then there's this long, lots of ink is spilled on all the people David meets as he leaves Jerusalem. Remember this? Well, now the author does the same thing gives a lot of space to the people David meets on his way back. Each of them are encountering the king, God's anointed king, and each of them must respond. Now let's see the responses that they have. In fact, notice notice who comes out first to meet David. Look at verse 16 of chapter 19. That's what we read. And Shimei... The son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now, you remember who Shimei was, don't you? Remember at the end of chapter 15, David and his men, they're, they're leaving, and who's Shimei? He's throwing things. What's he throwing at David? Stones, and he's also hurling something else. Insults. Insults. So the guy who was cursing David And throwing stones at him, he's the first one to come out to meet David on his way back. Gee, I wonder why. Could you think of any motivation why he might want to do this? Notice what we read in verse 17. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king too. Do you remember who Ziba was? Who is he that's supposed to look after? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, right? And remember what Ziba said to David as David's leaving in his exile? He's like, Mephibosheth, he linked arms. He's, he's with Absalom, remember this? He lied. Now he's rushing back to be the first one to meet David. Yeah, I wonder what his motive is too. Let's see. Notice we can see there in verse... 18, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. <laughs> and Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king, Abiasai, the son of Zerui. Now, let me, what do you think he's going to suggest? Any, any, any guesses? Any guesses? Same thing he suggested the first time. Notice what he says. Abiasai, the son of Zerui, answered Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Remember when they first met Shimei, he wanted to lop off the guy's head. And David said no, and he says no again here because look at verse 22. But David said, What have I to do with you, the sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know what I am, or excuse me, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Men. Who, who can tell me that in addition to the Master's Golf Tournament? What significant sporting event is scheduled to take place this Thursday? Uh, No, good guess though. No, not hockey. Uh, Those are two good guesses knowing me. Thank you, Paul. Opening day for Major League Baseball is this Thursday, right? Go Cubs go, okay? Now for those of you who follow baseball, tell me, Why does a runner often stay close to first base? I mean, he's allowed to to lead off as much as he wants. Yet why is it that most runners often stay relatively close to the base? Why do you think that is? Exactly, because they don't want to get picked off, right? I mean, if the runner had it his way, he just take off and do his own thing and head on to second, right? He stays close to the base because he doesn't want to get picked off. In many ways, we should view Shimei much like a runner on first base. If Shimei had it his way, he'd still be opposed to David. But like a runner on first base, the only reason why he approached David and asked for forgiveness is because he literally did not want to get picked off. Let the reader understand. Listen to me. He does not submit to David out of love, but simply out of policy. Now, why do I say this? Well, we know this is the case because of what we read about him and David just a few chapters later in 1 Kings chapter 2. You see, although David wisely chose to pardon Shimei, he too recognizes that Shimei is staying close to the first base of God's kingdom so he wouldn't get thrown out. David knows this is not genuine repentance, but rather just token submission. I mean, just consider what David says in 1 Kings 2, verses 8 and 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll summarize it for you. While on his deathbed, I mean, David is dying. He's just got mere moments left to live. And while on his deathbed, David commissions Solomon, the next king in line, with several important tasks. He says, Solomon, there are things I want you to do. Actually, David says there's some unfinished business that he wants Solomon to take care of, and it has to do with three men. And interestingly enough, you know who those three men are? Joab, Shimei, and the other guy we're going to see here in a minute, Barzillai, the very men mentioned in this text this morning. Now for Barzillai, David instructs Solomon to continue to bless him and his household. But that's not the case for Joab and Shimei. Instead, David instructs Solomon, while David is on his deathbed, Instruct instructs Solomon to put both Joab and Shimei to death. If David discerned that this was indeed genuine repentance in Shimei, do you think he would tell Solomon to put him to death? No. David even in this moment recognizes this is just token submission. He's just acting purely out of self-interest. This is also why, friend, we also shouldn't equate David's pardon in chapter 19 to Christ's love for his enemies. David's comments in 1 Kings 2 prevent such analogy. Yet what I want you to see is that Shimei only followed God's king, listen to me, out of self-interest. And that's ultimately what led to his death. You see, David left it to Solomon to deal wisely with Shimei. So you know what Solomon did? It's very clever. He said to Shimei this. He said, look, Shimei, build yourself a house. Knock yourself out. Build a great house in Jerusalem. But here's the deal. You need to stay in that house. You need to stay within the boundaries of Jerusalem. And he's like, Shimei, if you step out of the bounds of Jerusalem, I'm going to put you to death. You understand? Shimei is like crystal clear. Three years pass. Shimei's servants, they run away. Interestingly enough, they run to Gath to go see the king, King Achish. What does Shimei do? In a way that reveals his heart, his heart that values himself and his stuff more than honoring the king, he chooses to go after the servants. Solomon gets word of this and he brings Shimei in and says, Shimei, did I not clearly tell you that this is what you're supposed to do? He says yes, and then he put him to death. What I want you to see, Faith, is Shimei responded to God's king both in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel and also later on with self-interest He only followed the king for his own gain. And here's what I want to ask. Is that true of you? What is your response to God's king? Is it simply one of self-interest? Dale Ralph Davis provides this helpful application. He writes this. He says, one can bump into a shimei in the church. Someone who aligns himself or herself with Christ's people out of self-interest. There's some advantage to be gained. Perhaps it mollifies aging parents or pacifies a spouse. It is a token of submission to Christ, not a matter of conviction, but simply of policy. I ask, is that true of you? I mean, why are you here? Why, Why have you chosen to come to church to be with God's people? Is it just so you can get your spouse off your back? Is it maybe just to feel good about yourself? Or maybe... Do you feel like there's some advantage to be gained with your business and some contacts you can make here professionally? To steal that that last line, are, are are you following King Jesus out of conviction or convenience for you? If you find yourself identifying with Shimei, please know there's a better response, one that God's word would call you to instead. Consider the response of Mephibosheth. That's the next person David meets. Look at verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant, deceive me. This is referring to Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do, therefore, what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Remember, uh, Mephibosheth is whose son? Jonathan's, the grandson of Saul. And and he's reminding David, like, I should be dead. You had every right to execute me, but you did not. He says, You sent your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. Now put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes there for a moment. Everything was once yours, Everything was then taken away. And then he's like, David's like, I'm going to give you back half. How would you feel? Maybe some would be like, yay. Somebody's like, ah, can I feel more? Notice what he says. Very telling response. Mephibosheth, verse 30, said the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. If, if you were watching a football game or a hockey game and you know absolutely nothing about either sport or the team's playing, did you know there is still an easy way to know who the home team is? You know what that is? Yeah. The team that's wearing the darker color jersey. Did you know this? Well, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Okay, there you go. In football and hockey, the team wearing the darker jersey, that's the home team. Likewise, in the passage I just read, there was a way for King David to know if Mephibosheth was on his team, the home team, if you will. And you know what that was? It was Mephibosheth's appearance. By his appearance, he is giving every sign that he is with David. Please listen to me. Don't think that Mephibosheth was just letting himself go. No, he was intentionally choosing by not washing, showering, cutting his hair, dressing himself nicely. Please listen to me. He was intentionally choosing to share in David's sufferings while David was in exile. What Mephibosheth is doing is very similar to what we see Uriah doing. Remember, when Uriah came home, did he sleep in his bed with his wife? Did he? No, he decided to sleep outside on the front porch as a way to identify with his men who were at war. Same thing with Mephibosheth, because remember, Why couldn't Mephibosheth get up and go with David when he fled? Because he's what? Lame in both legs, right? So by him dressing this way, he's like, I cannot literally physically go with David, but I'm going to identify with my king and his sufferings. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to bathe. I'm going to identify with David as much as I can. And what I want you to see, Faith, is that in stark contrast to Shimei, Mephibosheth responds to God's king with humble devotion. And Faith, this should be our response as well. Notice what we learn from Mephibosheth. As we read this passage carefully, Mephibosheth makes several telling statements that reveal what's in his heart. Notice there in the middle of verse 27, we see that he has great admiration for the king. What does he say? He says, my my lord the king is like a what? The angel of God. Now, have we heard that phrase before? Answers, yes. Have we heard that phrase before? Yes. Yes. Earlier in the book, The woman of Tekoa used that phrase, didn't she? When speaking to David, David, you are like an angel of God. However, we knew it was used as flattery since the context made it clear the woman of Tekoa was trying to manipulate David. That's not the case here. Mephibosheth's appearance eliminates any notion that he's trying to do the same. No, this is a sincere expression of admiration for the king. But then, second, in the same verse, we see complete submission to the king's wisdom. For what has he said? He says, David, do therefore what seems good to you. David, I put everything into your hands. You do what seems best to you. And can I just say, oh, that we all would joyfully confess the same thing to King Jesus. Jesus, do what you seems good concerning me getting married. Jesus, you do what seems good to you with me wanting to have kids. Jesus, you do what seems to be good concerning my job. Jesus, you do what what you think is best. I give all my desires, all my wants, all my wishes over to you, King Jesus, and you do what is best. I will joyfully follow. What a heart of submission. What a heart of trust and confidence in God's King. Well, then notice, Mephibosheth is also amazed by grace. He knows he deserves nothing. He has no rights or claims. He sees himself rightly and is blown away by David's kindness. Look again at what he says there in verse 28. It says, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the King. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. He had never gotten over that grace. The fact that he was the grandson of David's sworn enemy Saul. Yet David took him in and made him like his own son. But here's the most important thing I want you to say. The most important statement he makes is in verse 30. After hearing back that David would give him back half of everything, what does he say? It's like, let him take it all. You're back safely. That's all that matters. Faith, you know what he's saying in that moment? He's saying, David, I value you more than anything else. You're back. You're on your throne. That's enough for me. I don't need any of this stuff. As many commentators have pointed out, and I think rightly so, David in this moment, you know what he was doing? I think he was testing Mephibosheth. He was testing his loyalty. Can, can, you, can you think of another example in the Bible? Actually, it's just a, a few chapters later in the next book, where, where a king approaches two people who both want something, and so what he decides to do is to cut the thing in half. Does that that remind you of another story? Who's the king at that time? And what's the object? A baby. This is almost a foreshadowing of that. Just as Solomon, he, he said, I'm going to cut the child to see who really loved the child most. David says to Mephibosheth, I'm just going to divide the land to see who Mephibosheth loves the most. And Mephibosheth passed the test with flying colors. He's a man of humble devotion to God, to God's king. So Christian, how would you describe your relationship to Jesus? And, and I I genuinely want you to, to think about this. Like, we need to ask ourselves, do we follow King Jesus simply for what he can give us? Or like Mephibosheth, do we follow King Jesus because he's worthy of it, <laughs> regardless if he gives me what, what I want? Yet Mephibosheth isn't the only positive response. There's also the response of Barzillai, which is one Of cheerful generosity. And again, as we're working our way through, I invite you, what is your response to God's King King Jesus? Is it one of self-interest? Is it one of humble devotion? And is it one here of cheerful generosity? Look at verses 31 and following. Now Barzillai the Gilead had come down from Rogalim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed in Mahaniam, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I yet still to live? That I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and women? He's talking about he's experiencing the natural, the fallen effects of aging. He says, why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? If you are the underlying type, that's a verse to underline. Why would the king repay me with such a reward? Verse 37. Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kinnam, let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kinnam shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal and Kinnam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Faith if, if you want to know what you really value and treasure, like if you, if you really, really, really want to know at the end of the day what it is you ultimately value and treasure, look at your bank statement. We give money to that which we treasure and value most. I mean, if, if you treasure living a certain lifestyle where you have to wear certain brands or you must drive certain cars or eat at certain restaurants, if you, if you value living a certain lifestyle, guess what? Your bank statement's going to reveal that. Or if your treasure is your hobbies, if that's what you value the most, your bank statement is going to reveal all the travel and expenses and materials associated with you engaging in that hobby. If, if you really want to know what it is you treasure, look at how you spend your money. But if God is your treasure, like Barzillai, your bank statement would reveal cheerful generosity to God's King. And his bride, the church. In fact, can I ask if someone were to look at your bank statement, what would they conclude? Would they discern that God matters much to you? What would they discover about your spending habits? Barzillai responded to God's king with cheerful generosity. And notice what we learn about him here. He gave and he wanted nothing back in return. No strings attached. You know, we learn in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver, right? Notice notice David's response to Barzillai. He blesses and he kisses Barzillai, doesn't he? You know what that is? That's God's king showing love to the cheerful giver. And faith, there's a great encouragement in this passage that I don't want us to miss. Tell me, how old is Barzillai? The text says it twice. How old is he? 80 years old. Think about this. Barzillai was 80 years old when he performed what is arguably his most important service for the kingdom of God. One of the many things I love about this church is God has blessed this church with many seasoned saints who are around the same age as Barzillai. And for those of you in that life stage, You know there can be the temptation, can there not, to think that you have no more use in God's kingdom. Friend, such a thought is from the pit of hell. Take that thought captive in obedience to Christ. That is not true. Listen to me, seasoned Christian. Your greatest service to God's kingdom, indeed, perhaps even your greatest test of faith might still await you. So finish strong. God can, will, and does want to still use you mightily, not for your glory, not so you can feel good about yourself, but for his kingdom. Let this man Barzillai spur you on to finish the race well. Encountering God's king requires a response. So what is your response to God's king Jesus friend? Is it one of self-interest? Is it one of humble devotion? Is it one of cheerful generosity? In this text, King David has returned. And you know what? Like David... King Jesus will come again too. But friend, please hear me. When he does, there will be no opportunity to respond. At his first coming, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But at his second coming, friend, he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And there will be no opportunity to fall down and throw yourself at the mercy of Christ in that moment friend, time is short. Follow in the steps of Mephibosheth and Barzillai. Give your life to God's anointed king. Friend, as was wonderfully articulated with communion, as has been expressed in our songs, if you have not yet, friend, owned the fact that you're a sinner under God's wrath, for your sin and thrown yourself at the mercy of Christ, what are you waiting for? Don't let another moment pass. Tomorrow is not promised. The offer of salvation is free to you today. Own your sin and go all in trusting, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm trusting what your son Christ has done on my behalf full stop that he did all the work necessary to save me by dying on the cross for my sins and being raised from the dead don't send this message to voicemail hear the gospel call friend and respond in faith and repentance And for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ, let us live in humble devotion and cheerful generosity. Amen? Let's pray.